Old Testament reading is Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Joel laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. I want to thank you, thank you, thank you for your prayers that Wendy and I would rest and relax and be restored in God's creation in Costa Rica. And we were. We were. Um, Some people call vacations R&R, a time to rest and relax and unwind. But it happened, it started in a way that we thought that it was absolutely going to be an unanswered prayer, that we would absolutely not be able to rest and relax during our vacation. It started out with despair and distraction. So instead of R&R, it was D&D. Now you need to know about my family that before we leave to go on vacation, that we like everything to be buttoned down and absolutely, you know, the, 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 my, I want the, my desk in the office to be fairly clean, uh, no dishes left in the sink. Uh, I mean, even, you know, we'll change the car oil just to make sure we got all those things done, the grass is cut and everything is lined up. But the day before we left, things began to come unwound. The washing machine. The washing machine. Now, you know, you can expect the laundry that you do the day before you leave to pack up to go. The washing machine belt goes kaflooey. And it's not just the belt, but I put the old one back onto the machine. It's the pulley that is rimmed out, so it's making this horrible noise as we're trying to wash clothes, and finally just goes kaflat. Now, the day before we left, it's July the 4th, so you're not going to get a washing machine part. Hannah's car, we've, we've got three drivers in my family and three cars. Hannah's car is on the flip, fritz because it's overheating, needs a new water pump, 
and then my truck is involved in a car accident that totals it. What else happened? Did anything else need to happen? Um, so it's all on July the 4th, and so trying to get a mechanic on the phone or trying to get insurance people on the phone or, or trying to get washing machine parts on the phone, we definitely were not going to be able to tee everything up to, to leave. The last phone call that I make on the concourse in Charlotte before we fly out of phone range for o- over a week I'm still trying to get these things put in such a way that maybe I can get some resolution so that when we return, all these things don't snowball on top of us. But this was one of the most relaxing, restful vacations I've ever had. Every morning... Wendy was, of course, not working, and so we had the privilege to have breakfast together. Every morning, we were able, as we eat, to get into the Psalms, and it was like C.S. Lewis uh, saying, God whispers to us in our pleasure, and he shouts to us in our pain. It was as if this was a megaphone, not simply reading, but speaking, the Bible speaking comfort to our despair. Where we had been so excited about the trip and then all of these events began to drive us into despair. And we began to become disillusioned and and, and think maybe we just need to cancel the whole vacation in order to deal with these matters. But if we do, we can't get the money back and that would be poor stewardship and there's really so much anyway we can do about these things now. And, and so we're, we're despairing and then God's word begins to speak comfort to our heart. In Psalm 116, the psalmist understands that. He understands our life. He understands reality. There's no uh, pie in the sky, by and by, plastic Christianity. Oh, everything is always wonderful. And it's always, of course, wonderful because God never allows anything to, to come into my life that's devastating because I'm a good... No. The psalmist lives in the real world. And he struggles, struggles in despairing circumstances. And yet, in the despair... He finds delight in the Lord. How do you do that? How do you keep, in your despair, how do you keep your faith? When you're you're just disillusioned once again, I worked so hard for this and could smash. Or I I really needed this job and they gave it to somebody else. I really, this relationship, I put so much into it. I've made so many sacrifices, and now they're gone. What do you do when you're disillusioned? What do you do when you're in despair? The psalmist has something for us in 116. Dan Allender, in his book, Cry of the Soul, and that's a, a way he looks at the Psalms and he says, like John Calvin, 
the great Reformed theologian said about the Psalms, they're like an anatomy of the heart, an anatomy of the soul. They, they really get to our real emotions and real life circumstances. They hold nothing back. And Dan Allender, writing in The Cry of the Soul, says this, Suicide, the choice of non-existence, is often preferred to hope. It allows those in despair to shield their hearts from the agony of becoming. Ungodly despair refuses to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It refuses to agonize any longer with the pains of uncertainty, loss, and the irrepressible desire for redemption and healing. Godly despair, on the other hand, is the collapse of the self-will. It is the surrender to a reality of becoming that we are powerless to consummate, but in which we are granted an opportunity to play a part. Instead of a suicide note, that puts a stop to the loss, it is a howling prayer that sees no explanation for our pain, but reflexively knows something beyond an answer is what we desire. And he concludes by writing, although ungodly despair demands an answer for the loss, it would refuse to accept an answer for the pain. So the choice, for we all face reality and disillusionment and disappointment and literally the pains of death as if it's just pulling us down to non-existence of life. We all experience that. But the choice is, will I stay in despair or will I face despair with God. Despair without God, despair with God. It's one of two choices. And the psalmist directs our heart with our despair to face it with God. So this morning, I want to show you with three images in this long text, I want to show you in three images the progression of that the psalmist makes in facing despair. The progression, so as the goal for this psalmist is found in verse 7. He is speaking to his heart and he says, O heart, O soul, O inner me, return again to that place of rest. How do you do that? How do you face reality yet delighting with the Lord? How do you face despair with delight? How can you hold to those two things? The psalmist will tell us you can do that so that your soul indeed will heed the admonition to return to its place of rest. So without further ado, the first image here that I want you to see is the image of the snare. If you look, it says in verse 3, The snares of death encompass me. The pains of Sheol lay hold of me. 
I suffered distress and anguish. Now, a snare in the Bible can be either physical, a physical snare, or it can be a spiritual snare. It could be a physical snare such as um, the most often found snare was a pit that was dug with camouflage over the top so that an animal or a person walking along would fall down into the pit that was deep enough that they could not climb out themselves. Or it was a physical cord. It was a, it was a snare of some sort that could catch a bird's foot or a rabbit's foot and it would coil around their foot and once again they were helpless on their own energy to relieve themselves. They could not deliver themselves. A snare is something that we either fall into or it captures us. Either in our life, we come upon a snare unbeknownst to us, we're taken perhaps by surprise, and we can't get out. Or out of the blue, seemingly, on our path, it captures us. But a snare is also not only physical, it can be spiritual. Notice in verse 3, he said, I suffered distress and anguish. And because of that, he began to despair. He said, it was like the grave was, was holding me. That was the cord that was binding me. I felt all tied up. This morning, even as John has prayed, he prayed about families in our church that are, having, that are in a physical snare. Miles Brown and his family are in a physical snare. Miles Brown in the PICU is facing death. Our life as we pray to God. There's nothing he can do. What do we do in our despair for Miles? He's trapped. He's helpless. We pray. We pray. Which is to be the result of the snare, as the psalmist would say. It's when we are trapped or captured. Whether we're facing physical pain, physical loss, physical realities, the loss of health, the inability to find work, or whether we are facing spiritual pain, depression, anxiety, fear, thoughts of suicide. But our despair in that snare should cause us to not despair in our helplessness, but as it were, to awaken us to see Him who is helpful, to see the only help that is available to us, and that is God. Or as the man who once said, when you're flat on your back in a pit, at least one thing is, is for sure. The only place you can look is up. God, when He first began to deal with His people, His ancient people Israel in Judges 2, He at this point has come to them and he's delivered them out of their bondage in Egypt. He's delivered 
them through the land of Canaan. And now they have made it into the promised land and they're setting up community there and they're taking over the land and building towns and communities and there's still people that live there. And God looks to this people in Judges 2 and He says, I have loved you and I have pledged to be your God and I want you to remember me and don't forget how I've delivered you in the past. And I put my love upon you. Because if you forget me and you follow their gods, little g, their gods will be a snare to you. Their gods will snare you. Now, is God snaring His people? Or is it the consequence of our own behavior that becomes the snare? A clue to me is if you look in that word in verse 3 where it says Sheol, that's an ancient word for hell. Where he says, the pains of hell, Sheol, laid hold on thee. Ever hear anybody say, how's it going right now? Or how's it going? Oh, right now my life is hell. Well, David dresses it up a little bit by Sheol. But the base for that word is the word crave. And I think it's good for me to know, as I speak to my heart, I recognize that many of the snares, many of the pains, many of the things that I agonize over and I anguish over, many of the things that disappoint me terribly may very well be the result of being snared following the cravings of Phil Stogner's heart following those things that I would look to to give me life or give me significance or give me security. I'm pursuing that. And it becomes like a grave to me. It brings hell into my life. But God, but God comes to us in our snares. And He delivers us. And as that, the the psalmist has seen that. It says that in verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. Another way to define simple is small children. Small children, again, physically small and helpless, not very wise, not able to, to, I've got to get myself out of this. Children can't do that. And the Lord preserves those who recognize that they're but a child facing these despairing events. And what does he do? He says, the psalmist says, when I was brought low, he saved me. Brought low is also used for dried up riverbeds and dried up ponds. Being brought so low in your estate, so low in your life, that you cannot help yourself and you cannot help other people. There is where God comes to us. As the psalmist in his despair, prays. And God meets us, and in meeting us, He delivers us in order for us to be set free, second image, to walk. We're now freed. No longer am I immobile, paralyzed because of fear or anxiety. Now no longer do I even wonder 
Where am I going to go from here? I may not yet know, but now I do have a sense of direction. I know that I am going to follow Him who has delivered me. I'm going to walk after Him, says the psalmist. Verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. For He is the one who's delivered my soul, verse 8, from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. One writer said, it's the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who's coming to deliver us with a trinity of deliverance. He's delivering me, my soul, from death that I deserve. He's giving me a new life so that coming out of the pit is like coming out of a grave. I went in one way, following my own desires, looking for life with other gods, and now God comes along, He delivers me out of His great mercy. And now I I know which way I want to go. I want to follow Him who has rescued me. And so I begin to walk after Him and always, always mindful of the trinity of deliverance. He delivered my soul from death, giving me a new life. So my past is forgiven. He's delivered my eyes from tears, the current things that make me weep. He begins to wipe away those tears. Oh, reality is still there. When Wendy and I prayed over breakfast on our vacation, we wept. And we didn't know how things would be resolved. But there was a growing reassurance as if God were saying, it's okay to cry about these things. It's okay. I know it hurts. It hurts like hell. But it's going to be okay because I am with you. I'm going to wipe those tears from your eyes. And then thirdly, it tells us that our feet from stumbling, the way that I had been going, He's now going to guide my feet away from the sins and the temptation. The the things that, that were so tempting to me, they began to become smaller because they didn't deliver me. They brought more trouble into my life. And the more I think of Him who has rescued me, I'll walk. After him. I um, would have you note that walking is very interesting. In verse 9 when it says, I will walk before the Lord. Walking before the Lord is the same thing as walking with the Lord. Same thing. It's It's the same word. Because when you walk in the Bible... It always means a mode of movement in a direction, but it just about always means walking with someone. And the intimacy and the conversation and the, and the, and the, the, the events that unfold for you on the hike, on the pilgrim journey through this life. The first walker in the Bible was God. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, and it was His pleasure to do so. Christianity is the only religion, the only religion that a God says, I walked with you then, and then after your rebellion, we no longer were able to walk together, but I was not satisfied until I remedied that through Christ, that we could walk again inseparable for life. He doesn't walk out of us with with our sin. 
He continues to come to us and invite us to walk with Him. He loves walking with us. And as we walk with Him, there's an intimacy and a reassurance of being with Him. As we walk before the Lord, we walk with the Lord. Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus. He delighted to reveal God's Word and reveal God's historic dealings with people to restore them over and over again. And then the Holy Spirit. We're told that the Holy Spirit walks with us as the Holy Spirit abides with us. We're never separated from God. We don't face, therefore, despairing situations alone. And God's hand may be heavy upon you, but be reassured of this. It is His hand. You may say, well, that's no reassurance. Yes, it is. For God is a Father. And He would not have us in our despair be alone for a moment. He, if you're a Christian today, He has walked into your life through Jesus Christ and the cross, and He is never going to leave you, never going to forsake you. Never, ever, ever. And if His hand is heavy upon you, be comforted that He has a grip upon you that He will never let you go. That heavy hand may be a hand that is pulling you out of the pit, and you're feeling the the tension of that embrace but it's to put you on your feet that you might be strengthened and comforted to continue the walk with Him. If you're not a follower of Christ today, if you're not walking with the Lord today, unfortunately and sadly, you you face despair alone and in the dark with no one. But God follows you even with His heart and longs to walk with you. Receive Him today. It is so simple. Simply cry out and say, walk with me. I am in a pit. I am in a snare. Either physically or spiritually. Emotionally, relationally. My life is hell. Lord, by your mercy, forgive me. Lift me. Walk with me. And may you declare to your soul, now you can rest for things are right with God and you don't face reality alone. And you, like the psalmist in verse 9, can say, now I will walk before the Lord in this living reality, but never again will I face things alone. And then finally this morning, I would mention to you that there is a cup. And you see it here in verse 13, where he says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call on the name of the Lord. The cup that he's talking about here, you know, the cup is not significant because of the outside. You know, you remember seeing uh, Indiana Jones and the search for the Holy Grail and then they're they're there in that cavern and... uh, That's where the Holy Grail is. And they come in. He's with uh, 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 Sean O'Connor. He's with his dad. And they come in there and it's like, wow, which 
one is it? And, and Indiana Jones has a choice to make, and his dad is injured, and he needs, to, he needs to take him a drink from that fountain that is there, but it's not the only cup. There are lots of cups in the room. And he looks and he says, wow, here's a cup that's got all these jewels on it, and then here's a cup that is just kind of plain metal, and here's a gold cup and a silver cup, and uh, here's the cup that looks like the cup of a carpenter. Very plain. Well, the cup's inconsequential is what it looks like. It's the contents of the cup that matter. And so the psalmist says, the cup that I'm going to raise is the cup of salvation. In Psalm 23, David says that like a little sheep going through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with me. He is with me. And I can face it because I'm not alone. It doesn't eliminate the valley of the shadow of death and its reality to despair, but I'm not alone. My cup overflows. And it overflows with His, his bounty and His goodness and His grace and reminders of His love, His steadfast love to me. It's not the other cup. Phil, what are you talking about? It's not the more prominent cup in the Bible. In Psalm 75, verse 8, it says that the Lord's judgment upon sin is contained as if in a foaming cup. A cup that is foamy and dark. And it says that apart from the Lord, we must drink His judgment and His wrath and His condemnation down to the very last drop. Drink it down to the dregs. In other words, there's two cups. There's a cup of God's grace and mercy. Or there's a foaming cup of condemnation. And the psalmist says, the Lord who rescued me from a snare, the Lord who I will walk with in this land for all of my life, the Lord who has rescued me, I will lift His cup, the cup of His name, the cup of His deliverance, the cup of His grace, the cup of His salvation, instead of lifting up the cup of the consequences of my own sin, the consequences that I deserve, instead of lifting up a cup of condemnation that I will always have that, for people to look upon me to say, wow, he's holding a cup of condemnation and that is, what is where his future lies. I will lift up publicly. And this was a, a psalm that was used in the worship service. Historically and traditionally in the Anglican church, Psalm 116 was used upon the birth of a child. I think it's remarkable that uh, Othniel Laska came in to the world this last week. We are appropriately celebrating his birth with Psalm 116. New life, but new life through the travail of the womb, through a snare and physical pain and, 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 
sure that Laura was, it was a piece of cake. But I never experienced a piece of cake in the birthing room. There's, there's tears and there's shouts and there's pain and there's agony and then there's new life and new birth and celebration and call everyone and celebrate. And God says that's a pattern of the gospel. That we become, we begin to see our life without Him. And we begin to see the consequences. And then we begin to see His goodness and His deliverance and His promise to show mercy to us upon our request. And then we receive that, and how do we repay Him? The psalmist says, how do I pay Him back? He says, there's but one way to pay Him back. And that's to always be lifting up this cup. To always harbor in my heart that I have been delivered and that by His mercy. And therefore, I am never alone. His wrath, the cup of condemnation, is poured out at the cross. It does not exist for me anymore. And I can do that publicly. And this psalm has been used mightily for people who struggle with depression, anxiety, despair, physical pain, emotional pain, and spiritual pain. Because the psalmist walks us through how to face despair with God. This morning, even as you walk through this, I would encourage you to share your story with others. But be mindful to lift up the cup of His deliverance and His grace. That even from your despair, you can encourage others. You can encourage others. And in that, we can worship to find delight in our deliverance from all of these circumstances in our despair. Let us pray. Father, many of us have had long days, long weeks, and long months. Some of us don't know or even see a time that it may end. But I pray, as your word is true, that in despairing circumstances, in difficult and hard times, you would release us from the very pains of death itself and fear. You would speak to our soul and you would bid it to return to its rest because we are not alone. And you are happy with us. You are not punishing us. You are not condemning us. You are not bringing bad things and despairing circumstances into our life. It is simply life in this land. Indeed, Lord, quite the opposite. You are bringing Yourself freshly into our life through these circumstances. So even in despair, Father, we find delight as we find You to be our great Deliverer once again. Lord, there's some people in this room that don't know how they're going to face the issues of tomorrow. Would you speak to their heart's fears right now? 
would you allow them to see that Jesus Christ on the cross drank from that foaming cup of condemnation. And he drank the cup in their place. And now they can raise the cup of your grace and be reminded of your grace and your mercy. For Christ, if you have died for our sins, if you have died to walk with us, then you will not abandon us now in the circumstances we face. So, Father, I pray personally that you would answer their fears by speaking to their heart, reminding them of your deliverance and your walking with them in your presence, that we can truly worship even in the midst of the storm. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.